Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Monday, October 10th. Does either party have a plan for our COVID endemic future? The New York Times COVID tracker reports today that deaths remain troublingly high, but they are experiencing their first sustained decline in several months. The number of deaths has fallen by 8% in the past two weeks, but it's still just a little under 400 per day, according to the New York Times COVID tracker. But as we've been discussing this summer here on the show, 400 Americans a day continue to die from COVID, and yet all the rules are coming off. The average in the last two weeks, to be precise, according to that New York Times COVID tracker, is 382 people per day, and that's with the decline in deaths they referred to. And yet in the last few weeks, Governor Hochul in New York lifted the mask mandate for mass transit and let her COVID emergency powers expire. And President Biden a few weeks ago said this on 60 Minutes. The pandemic is over. We still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it. Uh, it's, but the pandemic is over. If you notice, no one's wearing masks. Everybody seems to be in pretty good shape. And so I think it's changing. So if Biden is saying that, are both parties' leaders basically Ron DeSantis now? Does either party have a plan for our endemic future? Our guest for this is Dr. Eric Topol, cardiologist and founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, originally known as the Scripps Translational Science Institute, which focuses on research on the human genome and digital technology to improve healthcare. Dr. Topol is also a professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president at Scripps Research, and he writes a Substack newsletter on health called Ground Truths. Dr. Tobel, thanks for coming on today. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks, Brian. Good to be with you. Um, we'll talk plenty of, of science in this segment, but can I get your take first on the Biden clip for you as a doctor and scientist? Is the pandemic over? Should we be using some other word now? No, it's not over. Uh, we've got some rough roads ahead uh, still, unfortunately. Um, it's not over when there's nearly 400 people dying a day, uh, when we have nothing to address long COVID, and when we have some major, very difficult variants to contend with in the weeks ahead. So we're in a lull where cases have come down as they have in the past. You may remember, Brian, back in June of 2021, People were saying the pandemic was over. Then came Omicron and everything got reignited. So it's premature. The only way to say the pandemic is over is looking backward months and months where there's minimal severe outbreaks, no major waves. The virus is contained. We're, we're not there yet by any means. The president said everybody seems to be in good shape. That was part of that clip. <laughs> But the New York Times COVID tracker says we're still losing around 400 people every day. COVID this year is the country's third leading cause of death behind heart disease and cancer. And he says no one's wearing a mask as if that's a sign of no risk, even as we all know people who are getting COVID every time we turn around, it feels like. So on a policy level, do you see the Republicans and Democrats as being any different from each other at this point? 
Yes. I mean, fundamentally, the Democrats are looking to try to get more funding, or at least they were before the declaration of the pandemic is over, whereby there would be investments in things like nasal vaccines and variant-proof pan-coronavirus vaccines, you know, new generation of vaccines that are taking on the the patching up the holes, the you know, the formidable problems that we've run into ever since Omicron appeared uh, almost a, a year ago now. So the, there was interest in that, but that's been blocked, as far as I understand, uh, uh, in Congress. So there's no funding to pursue another Operation Warp Speed, where we had immense success in getting the first COVID vaccines just 10 months after the virus was sequenced, which is truly unprecedented. So we could do that again, but there's no funding. And it doesn't appear that the Democrats are still pushing on this because they've gone come up against the wall. So the Republicans don't want the funding for the next level uh, prevention and treatment research that the Biden administration wants them to fund. And so at least that is the difference between the parties at this point. You know, we had the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, on the show recently, and I asked him to explain his boss, the president's declaration that the pandemic is over. And this is part of how he put it. Two things can be true at the same time, that we've made progress and that we have more work to do. And that work ahead of us involves making sure that we protect as many people possible going forward from COVID. That means making sure people are up to date with their vaccines. So up to date with their vaccines was one thing the Surgeon General cited there. And then... I think outside of government, I think workplaces uh, and schools and other institutions should be sensitive to this too, should recognize that as we move into this next phase with our COVID response, we've all got to be sensitive to the fact that there are going to be people around us who are at higher risk. Uh, that might mean that we need to make special accommodations for them. It might mean that they may choose to wear masks in settings where we may choose not to. And we've got to recognize that those choices are appropriate for people to make based on their risk, and we should be supporting them in that regard. And so, Dr. Topol, that was all about individuals or individual workplaces making their own individual decisions. Um, I want to get back to the science that we started talking about before in a minute. I know you have a particular interest in nasal vaccines, which people might think is only an interesting area because, oh, I'd rather sniff something than take a shot. But it's really more profound than that. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But after those clips of Dr. Murthy and the president, do the rules of the road have no more place once we reach the endemic phase of COVID or if we're still in the pandemic phase, even today? And, and politically, maybe the Republicans simply won on what the required standards of behavior should be, you think? Well, you're making an important point about, you know, the idea that you seed uh, evidence-based recommendations because that's the popular, the, the, that's what people want. I mean, they everyone wants this uh, pandemic to be over, but unfortunately we can't will it to be over. We can't uh, be in denial. So the issues here, for one, um, the idea that up-to-date vaccine is the wrong term. It needs to be, if you haven't had a, a booster, you haven't been fully vaccinated. That's to start with. So the idea that you basically are compromising what is uh, the minimal vaccine program that each person should have 
which is at least three now. And now we're already getting into the fifth vaccine for many. So uh, this is a problem is that you're trying to uh, accommodate the uh, lack of using mitigation measures, uh, isolation, vaccines, you know, just this is not going to help. And the idea of displacing or or shunting the risk to the individual level rather than the government and public health agencies taking um, the the responsibility, uh, trying to shirk that is not acceptable. Do you have a take, though, as a scientist on how much two-way masking is better than one-way masking because when we move the risk to the individual, it's about, well, if you want extra protection for yourself because you think you're at risk of serious disease or for any other reason, you can wear a mask and it works really well if it's an N95 or equivalent kind of mask. We don't need everybody to mask around you as a matter of law or rule. Is there data on that? Well, there's some data. There's been lots of modeling data and, you know, I think as much epidemiologic data as we might be able to get. The, the issue here is first you mentioned the importance of high quality masks like N95 or KN95. Second, you know, it depends on the people you're talking about. So immunocompromised people, uh, there's more than 7 million Americans that fit in that category. They may have cancer. They may have had an organ transplant, or they may be on important immunosuppressive drugs. So for them to wear a mask, that's one thing. Uh, obviously, they, they need to, because even with vaccines uh, and now with Evusheld, uh, preventive treatment, they, they still are at risk. So they're going to be a whole lot safer if other people around them are also wearing a mask who could have uh, an asymptomatic infection or, you know, just before they're going to develop symptoms uh, and are very contagious. So that it's really about the people and their characteristics that make the mask story uh, and the extent of masking uh, all the more uh, important. Here's a tweet uh, question for you that's come in. And since you're a cardiologist, I think this is especially re relevant. Listener writes, I'm a healthy touring singer and musician, and one of the only people still masking and concerned about cardiac risks that come with even mild infection. How do I navigate making a living and still protecting myself? It's very confusing. So, Dr. Tobel, can you give that uh, musician any tips for protecting himself in the current, you know, uh, behavioral environment? But also for you as a cardiologist, how would you characterize uh, what he called cardiac risks that come with even mild infection. Right. Well, uh, unfortunately, there are some risks. They're low for mild infection of COVID and whether it's risk of uh, blood clots, uh, stroke, uh, heart arrhythmias, myocarditis. Um, you know, there's many different cardiovascular complications that can occur, even though the risk is quite low but increased with uh, COVID. And the severity of the COVID, of course, is tied in with a higher uh, increase in risk. So for one, the, these risks are out there. Uh, there's been several studies that indicate this is um, no question that they, they exist, and we're starting to understand the mechanisms. But for protection, um, you got the, the tools that we have today, which are uh, certainly all the vaccines and boosters, 
as this individual uh, mentioned, the use of masks, oh, certainly when indoors and in crowds, when possible. Um, and obviously, you know, anything that can be done to improve air quality, ventilation, filtration, those things are really helpful as well. But if we could stop infection spread, the chain of transmission, that would be the ticket where people would have much more confidence in being with others and being in crowds. And that's what we don't have right now. Kathy and Fairlawn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Kathy. Oh, hi, Brian. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I had listened to the last uh, segment you did before the commercial, and I, I was a little confused at what the doctor had said. I wasn't sure if he was saying that if you did have the Omicron variant, that you would be, like, the protection that you would have from those antibodies would be somewhat better than if you actually got the booster or if, you, if that was something for people that never had the, the sickness, or I, I just wanted him to clarify that point. Sure, Kathy. I think the point here I'm trying to make is that if you had a recent infection of COVID, uh, and that would be in July and August, BA5, the bivalent vaccine, which is BA5 directed specific, it's, it's a combination of that with the original strain, isn't going to make much difference because you already had the real deal and just getting the spike protein of that particular strain isn't going to uh, augment your immunity uh, to any significant degree. Uh, the other thing, of course, is once you've gone four months from the most recent infection, that's the time to get another booster. Not because you've had a recent infection or because about BA5, but each time you get a booster, you get a broadening of immunity. You get a lot more neutralizing antibodies. You get um, better T-cell immunity. So when you've gone out four months more than your most recent booster, it's time to get another one. And so that's, I hope, trying to clear up your question. And so people don't wind up confused, just to clarify even more, or almost even just restate what you said. Um, you're not against this latest fifth dose, bivalent, as they call it, uh, because it attacks both the original variant and Omicron bivalent um, um fifth dose booster, you're, you're not shrugging your shoulders at that. You're saying people who are four months out from their last booster or their most recent infection should get it? Yes, exactly. That if you, you're just a couple few months out and you had uh, an infection, uh, uh, it, it, it almost invariably was BA5. You're not going to derive. There's no rush at this point. But once you get past four, five, six months, you're, you're going to be vulnerable again. Uh, and especially, you know, as you increase in age, uh, you know, over age 50, that's where you see survival benefit of the extra boosters consistently throughout the whole uh, pandemic vaccination and booster phase. Dr. Tobel, you've written in your newsletter about still evolving Omicron subvariants. What do you see coming at us, say, this winter? Well, there's uh, already a lot going on in Europe uh, and also in Singapore. In Singapore, there's a variant called XBB, which is quite worrisome, that is now driving a major wave. And in Europe, uh, in several countries, including the UK and Germany, uh, there's a variant called BQ.1.1. We have it here in the U.S. as well. Those are the two most concerning variants. There are others. 
they're way downstream in terms of many more mutations beyond BA5 in the Omicron family. They deserve new Greek letter designations, but for whatever reason, the WHO is not doing that. Hmm. Nonetheless, the problem with these variants, the new ones, Brian, is that they, they will take over in this country. They're going to cause a uh, significant increase in infections and they have immune escape. So they may challenge our vaccines to some extent um, in terms of holding up completely as far as uh, protection from severe disease. There's certainly going to uh, be a problem with infections, reinfections spread. Uh, and most concerning, too, is that there, our antibodies are not going to work anymore. They have that much more immune escape so that the monoclonal antibodies we use for treatment or the Evusheld that we used to prevent uh, for the people who are immunocompromised will no longer have efficacy. So we're just going further along uh, in this uh, challenge of the virus, keep running ahead of the, the behind chasing strategies that we're using right now. And you advocate more rapid development of nasal vaccines rather than injections. Can you talk about where the science is on that and why you think they would be important? Yeah, the science is pretty extraordinary because the only way the virus can get into us is through our, our uh, upper airway, particularly our nasal mucosa. And this idea of getting mucosal immunity from a nasal spray or an oral vaccine is already, we already have two that are approved, and one in India, one in China, and many more uh, in the works. Unfortunately, there's no priority here in the United States. But even if these last for just a few months and they block transmission because you have this very high level of uh, IgA antibody, which is different than what you get in shots, that protects the route of entry for the virus to get into your body. And so that's what's so appealing here is that if you could just take a spray, even though it's every three months or four months, and you'd have strong protection during that period of time, that changes everything. Uh, and obviously, it's much easier than to have to take shots. Uh, it doesn't have nearly the side effect profile of just in those days after people get shots and boosters. So uh, this has just enormous appeal, but we're not pursuing it here in the United States. And it's really, I think, a dreadful uh, omission. Is that one of the things that you were referring to before that President Biden and the Democrats want to fast track research on, but the Republicans are blocking the funding in Congress? That's right. They have tried to get specific funding. Now, uh, they haven't been able to make any inroads. But on the other hand, uh, Brian, they ordered purchased 171 million booster doses. So that cost billions of dollars for this mm -hmm. bivalent. And it's only 4% of people have taken the bivalent so far. So it's possible that if they re had redirected their priorities with the funding that they have, have had, they could have... You know, Operation Warp Speed that got us the first vaccines only cost $10 billion relative to trillions that we spent on the pandemic. So any investment we make here would be prudent. Uh, and unfortunately, I think uh, from the Democrat side, we haven't necessarily allocated what funds that do exist, although it obviously would be easier if we could get incremental support right now and push on this so that we don't have to get these vaccines from other countries that are going to likely have a very big favorable impact.
Dr. Eric Topol, cardiologist and founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, originally known as the Scripps Translational Science Institute, which focuses on research on the human genome and digital technology to improve healthcare. Dr. Topol is also a professor of molecular medicine and executive vice president at Scripps Research and writes a Substack newsletter called Ground Truths. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.